and I uh, was, and the older I get, the more thankful I am for that, that my parents raised me in the church, and, you know, it's anything that we could be involved in, we were, we were a part of and stuff, and it, it, it definitely was a blessing, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't some goofy stuff that I uh, experienced in my, uh, my journey uh, up through church life, and uh, including this one time with this boys club I was a part of, we did this, like, Christian Olympics where we had like two teams in this boys club and we had these different like Christian events and we would like pick someone from our team to compete in this particular event and um, the one of the events was to uh, share the gospel was to present the the gospel message the good the good news and then so each team would pick one person to do it and then uh, the youth pastor would, would would judge us based on like how well we uh, uh, we presented the presented the gospel it's kind of weird to say out loud it made a lot of sense at the time but uh, of course, I was the one picked to uh, to to share the gospel, probably because I talked the most. Uh, but I get up there, and you know, like I said, I was a church kid, so I just start going for it. I went to I went to youth camp, or, you know, summer camp every every year, where you know every week at a campfire they're presenting the gospel and inviting people to you know to come forward and stuff like that. So like I could do this, and so I get up there and I start going. God is good, and He created everything, but then. Man sinned and ruined God's creation, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And he sent Jesus, his son, to die for us so that we could be forgiven. And then I sat down, feeling pretty good about myself. I just kind of sat down, feeling pretty, pretty confident. And the other guy gets up there, and he hadn't been in church as long, and he kind of stumbles over some words, and I'm like, in the bag, gold medal, gospel sharer, whatever, whatever it was. And then, but I didn't win, and, uh, and I was like completely flabbergasted. Oh, hey, Johnny. Um, oh, <laughs> that's my water. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna put this back down. All together Sunday, kids are welcome. <laughs> we actually practiced that so nobody else would feel bad. Like if your kid comes, you know, doesn't spill my water, then you win. Um, anyways, so I was confused and why I hadn't, uh, why why I didn't win, and my youth pastor just looked at me and was like, Josh you left out the resurrection. Like you sat down after Jesus died for our sins. You, like you, you left out the ending. And at that point, I, like, all I could do was blink. And probably because I was a punk, I probably tried to argue with him about how like, it wasn't necessary or something like that. God help me. Uh, but I, I wonder if, if any of you can relate to that, where you have been in church for a minute or so, and you hear about the cross, you hear about forgiveness of sins, and you know, and the resurrection is just kind of this like tag on that we stick uh, onto this onto this message, and it can kind of be easy easy to easy to ignore because um, what does it what does it have to do with our eternal security? If Jesus died for our sins, what does the resurrection mean for that? What does it have to do with our days on earth? And so we're looking at this passage in Romans eight, uh, and my hope is that it would uh, it would just show us that uh, the the resurrection. Uh, is actually really important, and especially for our everyday life. And in particular, the specific part of everyday life is that I, my prayer today is that we'd see the resurrection has the power to dissolve our anxiety with the incredible love of God. That's, that's what I hope, would to kind of consider the resurrection uh, and what it might mean for those of us who struggle with, with anxiety. It's the daily, the hourly, the minutely anxieties that we face uh, I believe, can all be addressed in Christ and his resurrection, and we can have freedom from them. And so the question is, you know, do you, do you want freedom from, from your anxieties? And for some reason, this came to mind this week as I was preparing this. Like, when it comes to anxiety, I kind of feel like uh, 
the one of the the maids in the movie The Help or the book The Help, where she goes like, "Ain't you tired, Miss Hilly? Like, ain't you tired? It's like, do, do any of us like want to be anxious? Like, do, is are any of us fighting to to hold on to to our anxiety? Like, aren't we tired? Because the truth of Scripture would say that anxiety is a sin. Like, Scripture is just abundantly clear. It calls us away from anxiety. Jesus says. Don't worry about your life. Paul says, don't be anxious in anything, but in prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. Uh, so it's clearly something that Scripture calls us away from that was like disobeying God. Uh, but I don't know if any of us are like really like rebellious, snarling to like, oh, but I love my anxiety. You know, we might do that with like, you know, maybe different parts of our life, like our money or sexuality or something. But when it comes to our anxiety, I don't know anybody who's like, I love being anxious. Please don't touch that, Jesus. Please leave me my leave me my anxiety because typically we I, I think we all hate it like I, I, I know I do um, if you're like me uh, you might feel kind of kind of stuck in it uh, and, and kind of guilty if you and then if you know a little bit about scripture you can even feel a little bit guilty like why why am I anxious and this week in particular probably because God knew I was going to preach on this he it was like a really tough week with anxiety I like struggled to sleep like the first four nights of this week uh and so it's just this idea of anxiety has been really heavy on my heart and i'm very much like preaching this sermon to myself and not saying like hey i figured out how to be free from anxiety but i'm trying trying to get there myself and so and for all of us i pray that we'd see our risen lord jesus uh in the freedom from anxiety there i think what we'll see is that underneath all of our anxiety like the root behind our anxiety is really unbelief like a shrinking or like a minimizing of who god is and what he's done in Christ. So turn in your Bibles to, to Romans 8. If you're following along the Pew Bible, uh, it's page 1758. Uh, Romans 8 is just one of the most beautiful passages we have in Scripture. Paul, the whole letter of Romans, uh, he's writing to the church in Rome, is just this incredible expounding of these glorious doctrines of the gospel. It's like the, the facts of the gospels. And then Romans 8, he gets to this chapter where he starts to unpack the reality that those facts give us, if you will. Like it, it, it's like hearing that you've inherited a billion dollars. Like that's a fact. Like there's now an account with your name on it that has a billion dollars in it. Uh, but then the realities of that billion dollars will then like trickle into your life and change everything. You Probably for the worse because, you know, more money, more problems. But it's that idea of like the facts of the gospel are true and are facts that are there. And then Romans 8 is all about what does that mean for our life? Like what, what is the reality that those facts make available to us? Because the gospel isn't ultimately just information for our brains, but it's actually this new reality that can transform our entire lives. So look with me uh, in our sermon text here, starting in verse 28, just to get a little, a little background. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the, the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So Paul is now uh, unpacking what can we say to these things. That's what he says right in verse 31. What can we say to all these things? If we've been predestined, called, justified, glorified, alongside the king of the universe, what next? 
And so the passage that we're about to dive into is Paul kind of rhetorically answering this question, like, what can we say to the realities of the gospel? What can we say to the glories of what Jesus has done? And he's all jacked up. He's just all excited, and he gives these four questions to which there is just no answer. Bible scholar John Stott summarizes these questions like this. He says, Paul hurls them into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer them and deny the truth which they contain. But there is no answer, for no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And in these five questions, we see that God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, he gives us, I believe he gives us an escape from the anxiety that we, that we face. And so we're going to break up anxiety into three categories future anxiety, past anxiety, and present anxiety. The first point is we are free from anxiety about the future because God is for us. Look at the second part of verse 31. Paul writes, or asks the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the question is profound because if Paul were to say, uh, who can be against us? We could be like, Uh, Paul, lots of people could be against us, lots of things. But within the question, there's the truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? There are lots of things that can be against us, but God, he is for us. And in light of Easter, in light of the gospel, it's important to note that God is not automatically or uh, intrinsically for everybody and everyone. Uh, there's lots of scary places in scripture where we see God being very much against people. Hear this passage from Leviticus, because it wouldn't be Easter without a passage from Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus 26, 14 through 17 says, this is God speaking, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you. You shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. Dang, not very cheery here. What does this have to do with our anxiety? But we see that God, there's, there's something going on. Something needs to happen between us and God for God to be for us, for God to not be against us. And in this passage, talking to God's people in the Old Testament, God uh, is, is saying, like, if you refuse to listen to me, if you refuse to follow me as the God of the universe, uh, then, then, then I'm against you. Like, if you rebel against me, then I'm against you. And what I think is so profound in this uh, conversation about anxiety is that you see what the, the, the effects were, the consequences of, of not of following uh, God's way. He's like, I'll visit you with panic and your bodies will deteriorate. Like, it, you will, anxiety comes when we reject God's way. And like, we know abundantly clear that anxiety has like physical reper- repercussions on our bodies. And I say all this to point out the beauty of our passage that shows us that those who have been foreknown by God have been predestined, called, justified, are those who, who Jesus has made right. Jesus has made righteous. So all those conditions, like do you follow my commands? Do you abhor my statutes? In Jesus, when we trust in him, all those things are yes for us. And so now God is for us. He's taken the rebellion that we've all done towards him and put them on Christ. Martin Luther said that 
the incarnation, uh, which is a fancy theological term for the reality that uh, G- God came to us in the man Jesus Christ, that God put on flesh and came to us. The incarnation, in that we see that God is not against us, that God draws near in the person of Jesus. But in the resurrection, we see that God is not just against us, but he's for us. Because I think there's a big difference between not being against something and actually being for something. Because there's lots of things that I'm not against. Like, I'm not against, like, the state of Vermont. Like, I just don't, I've never been there. I don't know anything about it. Like, I'm not for it. I'm not against it. Or, like, the trombone. I've never played it. I think it sounds kind of funny. But I, I don't, like, advocate for it. I don't fight against it. You know, there, there's, there's, you can just kind of be ambivalent towards something. But when it comes to Johnny, my son, like, I am for that kid, like, like to, to ridiculous levels. Like, when I, you know, walk up to go to bed at night, I walk past his bedroom, because Lord willing, he's in bed already by the time I go to bed, and he's asleep. And, I, and so, many, so many times I pause, and I'm standing outside his door, and I hear a sound machine going, and, like, I imagine him, like, snuggled up on this blanket that Catherine made for him that he really likes, and he's got his arm around his favorite stuffed animal, who's a bobcat named Bob, and I'm just, like, towards him. Like, my heart is just, I have to, like, fight the desire to go and, like, wake him up to, to be with him. Like, I just feel that towardsness. And that's, that's the beauty of the resurrection, that it's not like I don't, God doesn't feel towards us the way I feel about the trombone. He feels towards us the way I feel about Johnny, that, like, forness, just, like, he wants to be with us. We move from the panic and the wasting disease of being opposite of God in our rebellion to experiencing a good, good father just being immovably for us. Way more than my, my feeble love for, for Johnny. And so what does this do for our anxiety? We look to the future and we all have these questions. Like, will I be safe? Will I have enough? Will I be able to pay the bills? Will I be able to face what comes against me? Will I be a good dad? What will happen to my kids? And the answer is... The almighty God of the universe is for you in Christ, in the risen Christ. Because if God is for us, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, what can be against us? We look to the future and wonder, will I have what I need? But that's the next question. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What did it take for God to be for us? He had to give us his son. And so we can look to the cross of Christ and see that not only is God for us, but he's unbelievably generous. Because I I just wonder how many of our anxieties come from this mentality of lack. We just like everywhere we look, nothing's good enough. There's not enough of anything. We always need more, um, more friends, more money, more affirmation. And so we we rein it in. Resources are tight. I'm not secure enough. I I, I can't go there. I can't do that. But along with his own son, can we believe that God will give us everything that we need? Proverbs 31 says that the wisdom looks at the future and laughs. Like because we are sons and daughters of the king of the universe, we can look at the future. We don't need to worry about our life because our father knows what we need in the risen Christ. And he's unbelievably generous. So what do we do when we feel that lack? We feel that mentality of lack because... Hard things do happen. Suffering does happen. Well, if you excuse another dad metaphor, analogy, uh, this week we've been weaning Johnny off of his bottle, his bedtime bottle. 
and homeboy is not happy. Like it is kind of staggering the despair and anger that has come out of that kid and just removing this one part of his be bedroom or be bedtime routine. But what, like, are we doing this because we don't love him? No, like at a certain point, you bottles start messing, you know, give kids buck teeth or something. And at a certain point, like eating right before you go to bed without brushing your teeth isn't great for his teeth. So like out of our love, uh, in many ways, out of our love, Camille and I are trying to, you know, keep his teeth from destruction. And uh, believe it or not, Johnny can't understand that. We tried to explain it to him very calmly, but he, he's, not, he's not picking up on the love that we're laying down. I say, I, I say that, but I, I don't want to be flippant because we experience like piercing loss and pain as we go through life. But in the reality of the cross, the facts of the cross and the resurrection is that God doesn't spare us anything that we truly need. And those feelings of lack, those feelings of like anger and despair, like Johnny feels without a bottle, I think are, is an invitation to trust him, to look to our risen Savior and see, but whatever's going on right now, it's not that God is not being generous with me and that he's not with me. And it's invitation to take courage and with faith behold our King and Savior risen from the dead. The next question looks at the past. We are free from anxiety about the past because God won't condemn us. Sometimes uh, the, the past can fill us with anxiety. Uh, w w there are nights when I can't sleep and it's just like this highlight reel of terrible things that I've done and that I've said, ways I've mistreated women or hurtful things that I've said and I feel so guilty. But look what Paul says next. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised, raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So Paul, with these questions, kind of puts us in the setting of a courtroom, if you can imagine that in your head. We have a judge. We are at the defendant's table, guilty. And it can feel like all these things we've done are being paraded against us. All these ways that we, we fell short and let people down and hurt people. But we he here we see Paul's question that no one can condemn us. No one can accuse us because it's God who justifies. The judge himself has made us right. Because there's no answer that we could give in God's courtroom to make ourselves right. And so when the, the accusations roll, either from other people or from our own hearts, like, how could you do that? Who do you think you are to expect anything good when you've done this? What if, would she even talk to me if she knew this about me? What if my past actually catches up with me? No one would love me if they really knew me. These accusations come, and they come from the enemy. For those of us who are in Christ, the, one of the, the names for uh, Satan is the devil, and that like, literally means the accuser. But who can accuse? In that courtroom, the judge himself made us right, made us innocent by taking care of all of the stuff that we've done. To the accusations that would come against us, the judge, God himself, would say, I know. And I know all the other ones that you're not even mentioning. I know all of them. And yet I paid for them. <laughs> and I love the defendant. And we see the resurrection in the next question. Who is he that condemns? 
Christ Jesus died more than that. It's raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. We just had a new person introduced into our courtroom, and it's Jesus. And he's our lawyer. Like, he comes to the defendant table and sits down next to us and then says, may I approach the bench? And because he's in you know, triune unity with the judge, he can. And he intercedes for us. He's our advocate. Who could possibly condemn us when Jesus is our lawyer? For me, with my anxieties about the past, the condemnation that I find myself walking in, the guilt, the accusations I make at myself or get from other people, I think they they make me face my resistance to grace. The risen king of the universe is at the right hand of the father as my advocate, as my lawyer, taking care of me. There's no condemnation. And so in my unbelief, I'm like, nah, I'm really bad and I need to do better by myself. I want to be awesome on my own. Like, I don't want to need grace and forgiveness. My anxiety comes from fighting the brokenness that I know is there and, and just resisting falling into the, the arms of, of the Father. And so when the highlight reel rolls of all the stuff that we've done, all the crap, the people that we've hurt, we confess our unbelief and grace and and turn our eyes to the author and perfecter of our faith. Turn our eyes to our risen Jesus, who is, who is our advocate. And so dealing with the, the future and the past, we now turn to the, the present. And this, this last question, we are free from anxiety about the present because God will never let us go. If we can find some peace about the future because God is for us, immovably in Christ and generous, and if we can find peace uh, clinging to our risen Savior, who's our advocate, who says, look at the wounds in my hands and my feet. Like, there is, there is no condemnation for those who are in me. I've paid the price. What, what do we do about the now? Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul asks the question and tries to answer it. Trouble, hardship, persecution, here he refers to the the pressures and distresses that just come from living in a messed up world, an ungodly and hostile world. When we watch the news, which probably is not a great idea, how do we feel afterwards? Anxious, afraid, confused, worried about the people out there messing everything up. When... We, as Christians, are in despair and anxious about the direction of the world that our, that our country is going or the world is going. What, what might the scripture say to that? What might the good news of the risen Christ say to that anxiety? Next, famine, nakedness, a lack of food or clothing, danger or sword, the risk of death, like living under the risk of death or actually experiencing it. Paul's getting at the times where it just feels like life is obliterating us, like life is destroying us even though we're, we might be trying to be faithful. In verse 36, Paul quotes from a, a psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 44. He says, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Talking about a time when God's people, they were actually being faithful. Like they were, they, This wasn't a time where God's people were chasing idols and stuff like that. They were being faithful, and they were getting the crap beat out, beat out of them by all these pagan nations. And like, are we just sheep to be slaughtered? Like, It's acknowledging that there's times where you're being faithful, you're being obedient to God's way, and it seems like loyalty to God's actually kind of making it worse. 
After rattling these seven things off, Paul gives us the answer. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. We overcome these things, the times where we're being faithful and, and getting the dogs not beat out of us. Because Christ did all of that for us. Because of the resurrection. Christ experienced all of these things. All these love-separating things. In the cross, he faced all of these trials and tribulations. The, the hardship, the persecution. He was literally naked, hung on the cross. And ultimately was executed. He faced the sword. Not just the danger of it, but the actual execution. And was ultimately separated from the Father's love for us. But the resurrection means that he didn't just make it through. Like he didn't just like eke out to the other side and live to tell about doubt it, live to tell about it. But the resurrection shows that the very suffering of the cross, through the very evil, the hardships and persecutions, Christ brought about the redemption of the whole world. He made a way for all of us to experience this steadfast love when we're in the midst of trials and persecution and nakedness and danger. He made a way for all of us to experience this steadfast love, uh, not, uh, not, in spite of, uh, not, not in spite of these hardships that he faced on the Christ, cross, but actually through them. Paul isn't just saying, Jesus will help you get through your hard stuff. He's saying we overwhelmingly conquer. We are more than conquerors. We're super conquerors through Christ who rose from the dead. If, if to conquer means to, you know, to overcome and to win, uh, to take control. Being a super conqueror, overwhelming victory, doesn't just mean you win. It means you use the enemy's attacks against you, weapons against you, back on them. It means the instruments that were designed for your destruction are now turned upside down and instead bring you life. Being a super conqueror means that we join Christ in seeing God take something like death, even death on a cross, and instead of being a source of shame and defeat, turn it into the greatest symbol of victory and life that the world has ever known. We're free from our present-day anxiety because even when the evil in the world looks so strong, we know that God is the ruler yet. And like Judo, he uses the force of evil back against itself to bring about life. In Christ, we do more than conquerors. In Christ, we're super conquerors. Paul's, Paul's saying that in the resurrection, we see that life's worst circumstances are actually working for our good. The things that the enemy might want to use to make us bitter and hardened and despair and disillusioned. The power of our good God we see in the resurrection is to take that very awful evil stuff and make it a path to life. Imagine standing at the foot of the cross, seeing a flogged, destroyed body, naked, hung there, gasping for breath, pushing down on the nails through his feet and thinking like, what senseless evil? What absurd evil? How could God redeem this? How does, what does God do with evil? He takes it in himself and he transforms it for good. And look at how Paul wraps up. Verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul is just exalting. He's just like throwing down the gauntlet. He's certain, he's personally convinced 
as one who has suffered pretty much all of these things himself and is saying not the pain of, pain of death or the threat of death or suffering in life, not cosmic evils, superhuman powers, not time in the present or time in the past, uh, no power, no president, no political agenda, no evil Roman empire, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So for, for those of us here who are Christians, there's, there's freedom in our resurrected Savior that, from, from the anxiety that keeps us stuck. We see, we see ultimately that when we're in our anxiety, we kind of shrink in on ourselves and take our eyes off of our resurrected Savior and take it onto our circumstances, onto our emotions. And it's the question, the risen Savior looks at us and says, ain't you tired yet? <coughs> He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Let's turn from our unbelief and keep the risen Savior before our eyes, seeking to be strong in the belief that even the evil, even the pain, even the awful things in our life, even the guilt and condemnation that might be brought to our minds can be redeemed. Even our very anxiety comes with an invitation to acknowledge and I am anxious now that there's a breakdown and what I'm believing is the ultimate truth and reality here. And so our very anxiety can be an opportunity to step into this unstoppable love. And for those of us who are here who aren't sure uh, where you stand with Jesus or he's kind of more of an abstract, nice guy that has some good things to say here and there, hear his call, hear his, the same question to you, ain't you tired? And his call to, to invite you to consider the one true ruler of everything and to experience new life in the love of God. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I praise you for your love that both rebukes us in our anxiety and also comes to us so tenderly in the person of Jesus and takes it all on him. And Father, I pray the power of spirit, this image of Jesus as our advocate, Jesus as our intercessor, who's on our side, uh, pleading on our behalf to you. I pray that image would, would just be seared deep into our souls, that we would see in Christ you are immeasurably, immovably for us. Father, may we, by, by the power of spirit, be a people of peace, a people free from anxiety. Uh, may we glorify you in the trust that we, uh, that we experience and display that you are a good, good father, and you, you made a way to bring us into your family as your children. We thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen.